The clangor of the swords had died away. The shouting of the slaughter was hushed. Silence lay on the red-stained snow, the pale bleak sun that glittered so blindingly from the ice field, and the snow-covered plains struck sheens of silver from rent corslet and broken blade, where the dead lay in heaps. The nerveless hand had gripped the broken hilt, helmeted heads, back drawn in the death throes, tilted red beards and golden beards grimly upward, as if in last invocation to Ymir the frost giant. Across the red drifts and mail-clad forms, two figures approached one another. In that utter desolation, only they moved. The frosty sky was over them, the white illimitable plain around them. The dead men at their feet, slowly through the corpses they came, as ghosts might come to a tryst through the shambles of a world. Their shields were gone, their corslets dinted, blood smeared their mail. Their swords were red, their horned helmets showed the marks of fierce strokes. One spoke, he whose locks and beards were red as blood on the sunlit snow. Man of the raven locks, said he, tell me your name, so that my brothers in Vanheim may know who was the last of Wolfhir's band to fall before the sword of Heimdall. This is my answer, replied the black-haired warrior. Not in Vanheim, but in Valhalla, will you tell your brothers the name Amra of Akbitana? Heimdall roared and sprang. His sword swung in a mighty arc. Amra staggered, and his vision was filled with red sparks as the blade shivered into bits of blue fire on his helmet. But as he reeled, he thrust with all the power of his great shoulders. The sharp point drove through brass scales, bones, and heart. The red-haired warrior died at Amra's feet. Amra stood swaying, trailing his sword, a sudden sick weariness assailing him. The glare of the sun on the snow cut his eyes like a knife, and the sky seemed shrunken and strangely far. He turned away from the trampled expanse, where yellow-bearded warriors lay locked with red-haired slayers in the embrace of death. A few steps he took, and the glare of the snowfields was suddenly dimmed. A rushing wave of blindness engulfed him, and he sank down in the snow, supporting himself on one mailed arm, seeking to shake the blindness out of his eyes, as a lion might shake his mane. A silvery laugh cut through his dizziness, and his sight cleared slowly. There was a strangeness about all the landscape that he could not place or define, an unfamiliar tinge to earth and sky. But he did not think long of this. Before him, swaying like a sapling in the wind, stood a woman. Her body was like ivory, and save for a veil of gossamer, she was naked as the day. Her slender bare feet were whiter than the snow they spurned. She laughed, and her laughter was sweeter than the rippling of silvery fountains, and poisonous with cruel mockery. Who are you? demanded the warrior. What matter? Her voice was more musical than a silver-stringed harp, but it was edged with cruelty. Call up your men, he growled, grasping his sword. Though my strength fail me, yet they shall not take me alive. I see that you are of the Vanir. Have I said so? He looked again at her unruly lock, which he had thought to be red. Now he saw that they were neither red nor yellow, but a glorious compound of both colors. He gazed, spellbound. Her hair was like elfin gold, striking which the sun dazzled him. Her eyes were neither wholly blue nor wholly gray, but of the shifting colors and dancing lights and clouds of colors he could not recognize. Her full red lips smiled, and from her slim feet the blinding crown of her billowy hair her ivory body was as perfect as the dream of a god. Amra's pulse hammered in his temple. I cannot tell, said he, whether you of Vanaheim and mine enemy, or of Asgard and my friend. Far have I wandered from Zingara to the Sea of Iliet, 
in Stygia and Cush and the country of the Hyrcanians, but a woman like you I have never seen. Your locks blind me with their brightness. Not even among the fairest daughters of the Aesir have I seen such hair. By Ymir, who are you to swear by Ymir, she mocked. What know of the gods of ice and snow? You who've come up from the south to adventure among strangers. By the dark gods of my own race, he cried. Have I been backward in the sword place, stranger or no? This day I have seen fourscore warriors fall, and I alone survived the field. Where Mulfier's reavers met the men of Bragi. Tell me, woman, have you caught the flash of mail across the snow plains, or seen armored men moving upon the ice? I have seen the hoarfrost glittering in the sun, she answered. I have heard the wind whispering across the everlasting snow. He shook his head. Niord should have come up with us before the battle joined. I fear he and his warriors have been ambushed. Wolfier lies dead with all his weapon men. I had thought there was no village within many leagues of this spot, for the war carried us far. But you can have come no great distance over these snows, naked as you are. Lead me to your tribe, if you are of Asgard, for I am faint with the weariness of strife. My dwelling place is further than you can walk, Amra of Akpatana. She laughed, spreading wide her arms. She swayed before him, her golden head lolling wantonly, her scintillating eyes shadowed beneath the long silken lashes. Am I not beautiful, man? Like dawn running naked on the snows, he muttered, his eyes burning like those of a wolf. Then why do you not rise and follow me? Who is the strong warrior who falls down before me? She chanted in maddening mockery. Lie down and die in the snow with the other fools, Amra of the black hair. You cannot follow where I would lead. With an oath, the man heaved himself upon his feet, his blue eyes blazing, his dark scarred face convulsed. Rage shook his soul, but desire for the taunting figure before him hammered at his temples and drove his wild blood riotlessly through his veins. Passion, fierce as physical agony, flooded his whole being so that earth and sky swam red to his dizzy gaze, and weariness and faintness were swept from him in madness. He spoke no word as he drove at her fingers, hooked like talons. With a shriek of laughter, she leaped back and ran, laughing at him over her white shoulder. With a low growl, Amra followed. He had forgotten the fight forgotten the mailed warriors who lay in their blood, forgotten Niord's belated reaver. He had thought only for the slender white shape which seemed to float, rather than run before him. Out across the white blinding plain she led him. The trampled red field fell out of sight behind him. But still, Emra kept on with the silent tenacity of his race. His mailed feet broke through the frozen crust. He sank deep in the drifts and forged through them by sheer strength. But the girl danced across the snow, as light as a feather floating across a pool. Her naked feet scarcely left their imprint on the hoarfrost in spite of the fire in its veins. The cold bit through the warrior's mail and furs, but the girl in her gossamer veil ran as lightly and as gaily as she danced through the palms and rose gardens of Pontaine. Black curses drooled through the warrior's parched lips. The great veins swelled and throbbed in his temples, teeth gnashed spasmodically. You cannot escape me, he roared. Lead me into a trap, and I'll pile the heads of your kinsmen at your feet. Hide from me, and I'll tear apart the mountains to find you. I'll follow you to hell, and beyond hell. 
Her maddening laughter floated back to him, and foam flew from the warrior's lips further and further into the waist she led him, till he saw wide plains give way to low hills, marching upward in broken ranges. Far to the north he caught a glimpse of towering mountains, blue with the distance, or white with the eternal snows. Above these mountains shone the flaring rays of the Borealis. They spread, fan-wise into the sky, frosty blades of cold, flaming light, changing in color growing and brightening. Above him the skies glowed and crackled with strange lights and gleams. The snow shone weirdly, now frosty blue, now icy crimson, now cold silver, through a shimmering icy realm of enchantment. Amra plunged doggedly onward in a crystalline maze, where the only reality was the white body dancing across the glittering snow ever beyond his reach. Yet he did not wonder at the necromantic strangeness of it all. Now even when two gigantic figures rose up to bar his way, the scales of their mail were white with hoarfrost. Their helmets and their axes were sheathed in ice. Snow sprinkled their locks and their beards, or spikes of icicles. Their eyes were cold to the light that streamed above them. Brothers, cried the girl, dancing between them. Look who follows. I've brought you a man for the feast. Take his heart, that we may lay it smoking on our father's board. The giants answered with roars like the grinding of icebergs on a frozen shore, and heaved up their shining axes. The maddening Akbitanan hurled himself upon them. A frosty blade flashed before his eyes, blinding him with his brightness, and he gave back a terrible stroke that sheared through his foe's thigh. With a groan, the victim fell and at the instant Amor was dashed into the snow, his left shoulder numb from the blow of the survivor, from which the warrior's mail had barely saved his life. Amra saw the remaining giant looming above him like a colossus carved of ice etched against the glowing sky. The axe fell to sink through the snow and deep into the frost earth as Amra hurled himself aside and leapt to his feet. The giant roared and wrenched the axe head free. Even as he did so, Amra's sword sang down. The giant's knees bent and he sank slowly into the snow, which turned crimson with the blood that gushed from his half-severed neck. Amra wheeled to see the girl standing a short distance away, staring in wide-eyed horror. All mockery gone from her face, he cried out fiercely, and the blood drops flew from his sword. As his hand shook in the intensity of his passion, Call the rest of your brothers, he roared. Call the dogs. I'll give their hearts to the wolves. With a cry of fright, she turned and fled. She did not laugh now, nor mock him over her shoulder. She ran as for her life, and though he strained every nerve and thew, until his temples were like to burst in the snow, swam red to his gaze. She drew away from him, dwindling in the witch fires of the skies, until she was a figure no bigger than a child, then a dancing white flame on the snow, then a dim blur in the distance, but grinding his teeth until the blood started from his gums. He reeled on, and he saw the blur grow to a dancing white flame, and then she was running less than a hundred paces ahead of him, and slowly the space narrowed foot by foot. She was running with effort now, her golden locks blowing free. He heard the quick panting of her breath, saw a flash of fear, in the look she cast over her alabaster shoulder, grim endurance of the warrior had served him well. Speed ebbed from her flashing white legs. She reeled in her gait, and in his untamed soul flamed up the fires of hell. She had fanned so well with an inhuman roar. He closed in on her, just as she wheeled with a haunting cry, and flung out her arms to fend him off. His sword fell on the snow as he crushed her to him. 
Her supple body bent backward as she fought with desperate frenzy in his iron arms. Her golden hair blew about her face, blinding him with its sheen. The feel of her slender figure twisted in his mailed arms, drove him to blind her madness. Strong fingers sank deep in her smooth flesh, and that flesh was cold as ice, as if he embraced not a woman of human flesh and blood, but a woman of flaming ice. She writhed her golden head aside, striving to avoid the savage kisses that bruised her red lips. You are cold as the snow, he mumbled dazedly. I will warm you with the fire in my blood. With a desperate wrench, she twisted from his arms, leaving her single gossamer garment in his grasp. She sprang back and faced him, her golden locks in the wild disarray, her white bosom heaving, her beautiful eyes blazing with terror. For an instant he stood frozen, awed by her terrible beauty as she posed naked against the snows, and in that instant she flung her arms towards the lights that glowed in the skies above her, and cried out in a voice that rang in Amra's ears forever after. Ymir, O oh my father, save me. Amra was leaping forward, arms spread to seize her, when with a crack like the breaking of an ice mountain, the whole skies leaped into icy fire. The girl's ivory body was suddenly enveloped in a cold blue flame, so blinding that the warrior threw up his hands to shield his eyes. A fleeting instant, skies and snowy hills were bathed in crackling white, flames, blue darts of icy light, frozen crimson fires. Then Amra staggered, and cried out. The girl was gone. The glowing snow lay empty and bare. High above him, the witch lights flashed and played in a frosty sky gone mad. Among the distant blue mountains, there sounded a rolling thunder, as of a gigantic war chariot rushing behind steeds whose frantic hooves struck lightning from the snows and echoes from the skies. And suddenly the borealis, the snowy hills, and the blazing heavens reeled drunkenly to amorous sight. Thousands of fireballs burst with showers of sparks, and the sky itself became a titanic wheel, which rained stars as it spun under his feet. The snowy hills heaved up like a wave, and Actanon crumpled into the snows to lie motionless in a cold, dark universe whose sun was extinguished eons ago. Amra felt the movement of life. The year was 2081, and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God and the law. They were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger or quicker than anyone else. All this equality was due to the 211th, 212th, and 213th Amendments to the Constitution and to the unceasing vigilance of agents of the United States Handicapper General. Some things about living still weren't quite right. Though April, for instance, still drove people crazy by not being springtime. And it was in the clammy months that the H.G. men took George and Hazel Bergeron's 14-year-old son Harrison away. It was tragic, all right, but George and Hazel couldn't think about it very hard. Hazel had a perfectly average intelligence, which meant she couldn't think about anything except in short bursts. And George, while his intelligence was way above normal, had a little mental handicap radio in his ear. He was required by law to wear it at all times. It was tuned to a government transmitter. Every 20 seconds or so, the transmitter would send out some sharp noise to keep people like George from taking unfair advantage of their brains. George and Hazel were watching television. There were tears on Hazel's cheeks. She'd forgotten for the moment what they were about. On the television screen were ballerinas. A buzzer sounded in George's head. 
His thoughts fled in panic, like bandits from a burglar alarm. That was a really pretty dance, that dance they just did, said Hazel. Huh, said George. That dance, it was nice, said Hazel. Yup, said George. He tried to think a little bit about the ballerinas. They weren't really very good. No better than anybody else would have been, anyway. They, burdened, they were burdened with sash weights and bags of birdshot, and their faces were masked so that no one seeing a free and graceful gesture or a pretty face would feel like something the cat drug in. George was toying with the vague notion that maybe dancers shouldn't be handicapped, but he didn't get very far into it before another noise in his ear radio scattered his thoughts. George winced, so did two out of the eight ballerinas. Hazel saw him wince. Having no mental handicap herself, she had to ask George what the latest sound had been. Sounded like somebody hitting a milk bottle with a ball-peen hammer, said George. I think it would be real interesting hearing all the different sounds, said Hazel. A little envious. All the things they think up. Um, said George. Only if I was handicapped or general. You know what I would do? Said Hazel. Hazel, as a matter of fact, bore a strong resemblance to the handicapper general. A woman di named Diana Moon Glampers. If it was Diana Moon Glampers, said Hazel, I'd have chimes on Sunday. Just chimes. Kind of in honor of religion. I could think if it was just chimes, said George. Well, maybe make them real loud, said Hazel. I think, I think I'd make a good handicapper general. Good as anybody else, said George. Who knows better than I do what normal is, said Hazel. Right, said George. He began to think glimmeringly about his abnormal son, who was now in jail. About Harrison, but a 21-gun salute and his head stopped that. Boy, said Hazel, that was a doozy, wasn't it? It was such a doozy that George was white and trembling, and tears stood on the rim of his red eyes. Two of the eight ballerinas had collapsed to the studio floor, were holding their temples. All of a sudden, you look so tired, said Hazel. Why don't you stretch out on the sofa, so you can rest your handicap bag on the pillows, honey bunch? She was referring to the 47 pounds of birdshot in a canvas bag which was padlocks around George's neck. Go on and rest the bag for a little while, she said. I don't care if you're not equal to me for a while. George weighed the bag with his hands. I don't mind it, he said. I don't notice it anymore. It's just a part of me. You've been so tired lately, kind of wore out, said Hazel. There was just some way we could make a little hole in the bottom of the bag and just take out a few of them lead balls. Just a few. Two years in prison and $2,000 fine for every ball I took out, said George. I don't call that a bargain. If you could just take out a few when you came home from work, said Hazel. I mean, you don't compete with anybody around here. You just sit around. If I try to get away with it, said George, then other people'd get away with it. Pretty soon we'd be right back to the Dark Ages again, with everybody competing against everybody else. You wouldn't like that, would you? I'd hate it, said Hazel. There you are, said George. The minute people start cheating on laws, what do you think happens to society? If Hazel hadn't been able to come up with an answer to this question, George couldn't have supplied one. A siren was going off in his head. Reckon it'd fall apart, said Hazel. What would, said George blankly. Society, said Hazel uncertainly. Wasn't that what you just said? Who knows, said George. The television program was suddenly interrupted for a news bulletin. It wasn't clear at first as to what the bulletin was about, since the announcer, like all announcers, had a serious speech impediment. For about half a minute, and in a state of high excitement, the announcer tried to stay, ladies and gentlemen. He finally gave up, handed the bulletin to a ballerina to read. That's all right, said Hazel, said of the announcer. He tried. That's the big thing. He tried to do the best he could with what God gave him. He should get a nice raise for trying so hard. 
Ladies and gentlemen, said the ballerina, reading the bulletin, she must have been extraordinarily beautiful, because the mask she wore was hideous, and it was easy to see that she was the strongest, most graceful of all the dancers, for her handicapped bags were as big as those worn by two hundred pound men, and she had to apologize at once for her voice, which was very unfair voice for a woman to use. Her voice was warm and luminous, timeless melody. Excuse me, she said. She began again making her voice absolutely uncompetitive. Harrison Bergeron, age 14, she said in a grackle squawk, has just escaped from jail, where he was held on suspicion of plotting to overthrow the government. He's a genius and an athlete, is under-handicapped, and should be regarded as extremely dangerous. A police photograph of Harrison Bergeron was flashed on the screen upside down, then again sideways, upside down again, then right side up. The picture showed the full length of Harrison against a background, calibrated in feet and inches. He was exactly seven feet tall. The rest of Harrison's appearance was Halloween and hardware. Nobody had ever been born heavier handicaps. He had outgrown hindrances faster than the HG men could think them up. Instead of a little ear radio for a mental handicap, he wore a tremendous pair of earphones and spectacles with thick wavy lenses. The spectacles were were intended to make him not only half-blind, but to give him a wanging headache besides. Scrap metal was hung all over him. Ordinarily, there was a certain symmetry, a military neatness to the handicaps issued to strong people. But Harrison looked like a walking junkyard in the race of life. Harrison carried 300 pounds, and to offset his good looks, the HG men required that he wear at all times a red rubber ball for a nose, keep his eyebrows shaved off, and covered his even white teeth with black caps at snaggletooth random. If you see this boy, said the ballerina, do not, I repeat, do not try to reason with him. There was a shriek of a door being torn from its hinges. Scream and barking cries of consternation came from the television set. The photograph of Harrison Bergeron on the screen jumped again and again, as though dancing to the tune of an earthquake. George Bergeron correctly identified the earthquake, and while he might have, for many was the time, his own home had danced to the same crashing tune. My God, said George, that must be Harrison. The realization was blasted from his mind instantly by the sound of an automobile collision in his head. When George could open his eyes again, the photograph of Harrison was gone. A living, breathing Harrison filled the screen, clanking, clownish, and huge. Harrison stood in the center of the studio. The knob of the, up of the uprooted studio door was still in his hand. Ballerinas, technicians, musicians, and announcers cowered on their knees before him, expecting to die. I am the Emperor, cried Harrison. Do you hear? I am the Emperor. Everybody must do what I say at once. He stamped his foot and the studio shook. Even as I stand here, he bellowed, crippled, hobbled, and sickened. I am a greater ruler than any man who ever lived. Now watch me become what I can become. Harrison tore the straps of his handicap harness like wet tissue paper. Four straps guaranteed to support 5,000 pounds. Harrison's scrap iron handicaps crashed to the floor. Harrison thrust his thumbs under the, under the bar of the padlock that secured his head harness. The bar snapped like celery. Harrison smashed his headphones and spectacles against the wall. He flung away his rubber ball nose, revealed a man that would have awed Thor, the god of thunder. I shall now select my empress, he said, looking down on the cowering people. Let the first woman who dares to rise to her feet claim her mate in her throne. A moment passed, and then again, and then a ballerina rose, swaying like a willow. 
Harrison plucked the mental handicap from her ear, snapped off her physical handicaps with marvelous delicacy. Last of all, he removed her mask. She was blindingly beautiful. Now, said Harrison, taking her hand, shall we show the people the meaning of the word dance? Music, he commanded. The musicians scrambled back into their chairs, and Harrison stripped them of their handicaps too. Play your best, he told them, and I'll make you barons and